This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this crime, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations, suicide, and body mutilation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Mohammed Abu Bakar read the paper in disbelief. Police were looking for any information that might help them identify an unknown body pulled from the Royal Canal. As Mohammed scanned the photos of the recovered clothing, an alarm bell went off in his head. He recognized the white soccer jersey in the photo. It was his friend, Farah's favorite. When was the last time he saw Farah and his girlfriend, Kathleen? A month ago? Or maybe it was two? He remembered running into the couple walking through Dublin city center. Kathleen's two adult daughters were with them too. Farah was drunk and none of them looked like they were in a particularly good mood. With as miserable as they looked, Mohammed wasn't surprised when he heard Farah broke up with Kathleen shortly after. They were never a good match and the relationship was volatile. But did they actually break up? Mohammed looked closer at the picture of the clothes. He became convinced something was wrong. He took the bus to the police station and told the officer behind the desk, I know the identity of the person pulled from the canal. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we explored how an affair developed between Kathleen Mohall and Farah Noor. When the violence in their relationship escalated, Kathleen began to fear for her life. It all culminated in a violent confrontation between Farah and Kathleen's adult daughters, 
Linda, and Charlotte Mohall. This week, we will look at the deadly consequences of that fight, the investigation into what happened, and the trial that followed. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. By March of 2005, 49-year-old Kathleen Mohall and 38-year-old Farah Noor had been together for nearly four years. Their entire relationship had been rife with shouting matches and physical abuse. But Kathleen, in love with Farah, stayed in spite of the violence and in spite of her growing fear that he would one day go too far. On March 20, 2005, Kathleen and Farah spent the day drinking and taking drugs with Kathleen's two adult daughters, Charlotte and Linda. Eventually, the foursome returned to Kathleen and Farah's apartment. There, the combination of liquor and ecstasy proved to be a deadly cocktail. Farah, drunk and high, became fixated on 30-year-old Linda. He grabbed her by the waist and refused to let go, coming on to her. Kathleen shoved Farah, trying to make him let go of her daughter. He turned and looked at Kathleen with dark eyes. Then, he dragged his finger across his throat. The message was clear. Kathleen pleaded to the girls, Please kill him for me. Kill him or he'll kill me. 21-year-old Charlotte grabbed a small paring knife off the counter and showed the blade to Farah, commanding him to let go of Linda. The kitchen was small with all four adults packed inside. No room to run. Charlotte yelled at Farah again, let her go. But he held fast, Linda struggling against his strong grip. Charlotte lifted the knife. Linda closed her eyes. Farah finally let go, clutching his neck instead. He sputtered and gurgled as blood quickly seeped through his fingers. He took a few stumbling steps forward and called out for Kathleen. Then he collapsed. Kathleen stood frozen, watching the red pool around him grow. Charlotte, still holding the knife and surging with adrenaline, approached the fallen man. Thoughts of her mother's abuse at his hands overwhelmed her. She stabbed him again and again in a fury, unable to stop herself. Linda, still high from the ecstasy, hallucinated that Farah was trying to get up from the ground. She grabbed a hammer from the counter and rushed to her sister's side to help, swinging the hammer down until her arms were tired. They sat down next to Farah's body, exhausted and covered in blood, and cried. Eventually, the sisters went into the living room, where Kathleen sat on the couch in silent shock. She stared straight ahead at nothing. When Linda told her Farah was dead, Heavy sobs racked her body. The girls cried again, too. When they calmed down, the women talked about what to do with Farah's body. They had to get it out of the apartment, but none of them had a car. It's not clear who first suggested it, 
but they all agreed that the only way to get rid of the body was in pieces. After stealing their nerves with a few more shots of vodka, Linda and Charlotte dragged Farah's body to the bathroom. Kathleen stayed on the couch in the living room, still not saying a word. After searching the kitchen drawers, the sharpest thing they could find was a nine-inch bread knife. The sisters looked down at Farah's body and then at each other. Were they really going to do this? Charlotte took up the knife first, going to work on Farah's right leg, putting out of her mind the reality of what she was doing. Please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to licensed clinical social worker and therapist, Lamisha Lindsay, approximately 73% of people experience a dissociative state either during or immediately following a traumatic event. This dissociation is a defense mechanism. Charlotte, to protect her mind from the horror, separated herself from the act. But Linda wasn't like Charlotte. She was acutely aware of every cut. For four hours, Linda had helped Charlotte hack and hammer at Farah's body, stopping only when her sobbing made it too difficult to continue. Her emotions were overwhelming. She felt both intense remorse and intense revulsion. Linda sat back against the bathroom wall to catch her breath. They were nearly done with the gruesome task, and then Farah would be out of her life forever. Over the last four years, no person had hurt her family more than him. She'd seen the bruises on her mother from his hands. One night, Kathleen had confessed after too many drinks that he raped her when she refused to have sex with him. But did that mean he deserved to die? To be cut apart? Then, Linda remembered the feeling of his breath in her ear, whispering that she was just like her mother. She knew that if they hadn't stopped Farah, he would have raped her too. In a sudden rage, Linda grabbed the knife and dismembered Farah further, sawing off his penis. While Linda's actions seem drastic, they're not entirely uncommon. In a paper titled Homicides with Mutilation of the Victim's Body, researchers identified five main types of homicidal mutilation. The majority of Farah's dismemberment fell into the defensive category. The dismemberment was an attempt to hide the crime. But we see a second type with Linda's decision to cut off Farah's penis, the aggressive category. It was motivated solely by intense anger. She was sending a message that Farah wasn't going to rape anyone ever again. The last task was to decapitate Farah. Linda covered his face with a towel so they wouldn't have to look at him while they did it. With this job complete, Linda completely broke down in tears. Charlotte forced herself to keep her composure as she comforted Linda. What's done was done. It was time to make sure they didn't get caught. It was now after 11 p.m. If they worked quickly, they would be protected by the dark. Charlotte gathered Farah's remains in black trash bags, but when she picked up Farah's head, Linda stopped her. If someone found the bags apart, the head would make identification easy. Police would go straight to Kathleen's door. 
she told Charlotte to put the head aside and they'd deal with it later. Even with the body in pieces, there were too many bags for the women to carry in one trip. They really needed a car. There was only one person they could think of who both owned a car and would do just about anything for Linda and Charlotte, their father, John Mulhall. Linda handed her phone to Kathleen. They knew John would never answer a call from his ex-wife, but he would answer one from Linda's phone, day or night. John picked up, but when he heard Kathleen's voice on the other end, he snapped, What do you want? Kathleen told him there was a problem having to do with Linda and Charlotte, and he needed to come over right away. When she wouldn't tell him what the problem was, he hung up on her. He wasn't playing whatever game she was trying to engage him in. But a few minutes later, he called back. He would come over just to check on his girls. Linda felt immediate relief. Her dad was coming. Her dad would fix things. As John drove across Dublin, Linda and Charlotte scrubbed the bathroom. It hadn't been cleaned at all in the four months Kathleen and Farah had been living there. And now, on top of all the grime was blood, tissue, and bone fragments. Charlotte didn't even notice the clock when it turned over to midnight, her 22nd birthday. She was too busy scrubbing. John arrived around 1 a.m. Linda and Charlotte hid in the bedroom with their ear against the door, listening to Kathleen explain what had happened. John saw the black bag stacked in the corner. Was that Farah? When Kathleen said yes, John yelled and cursed at her. The girls came out of the bedroom crying and begging him to help them. He looked at his daughters, covered in blood, and told them they were on their own. He was not going to help cover up a murder. He stormed out of the apartment. Linda felt her stomach tighten. John was her way out of this mess. There was no way they could do this themselves. Linda began to panic as she pictured child services leading her kids off to one of their cars while she was taken away in handcuffs. She couldn't let that happen. With new resolve, Linda rejoined Charlotte and Kathleen in scrubbing the apartment clean. But as they cleaned, Linda couldn't stop looking at the black bags. How were they going to get rid of them? Coming up, the Mulhall women continue to cover up a murder. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. As March 20th rolled into March 21st, 2005, 49-year-old Kathleen Mulhall and her daughters, 30-year-old Linda and 22-year-old Charlotte scrubbed blood off the walls and floor while discussing what to do next. Together, they had killed and dismembered 38-year-old Farnor. They gathered the pieces of his body in black trash bags. Without a car, 
they had to dump the bag somewhere accessible on foot. They decided on the Royal Canal, which runs through Dublin, just a three-minute walk away. Kathleen gave the girls clean clothes to change into. They threw their bloodied shirts into one of the trash bags and discussed a cover story. Kathleen would tell people that Farah had run out on her. He had no family in Ireland. His circle of friends was used to him dropping in and out of their lives. And his job was through a temporary agency. To them, he would just be another employee who quit without notice. Who knows when, if ever, he would be reported missing. To make the story more convincing, they threw all of Farah's clothes in the bags. If anyone came around, it should look like he had cleared out. Charlotte put Farah's jewelry and cell phone aside, though. She could sell those. Though initially hoping to dispose of Farah's remains in the dark, they didn't leave the apartment until 7 a.m. Charlotte and Linda each stuffed a few of the garbage bags into duffel bags, looking as though they were headed to the gym. Instead, they walked to the canal. They scanned the area for people. No one was out. They each opened their bags and dumped the contents into the water. It took several trips from the apartment to the bridge to dispose of the eight bags of Farah's remains. Each time, they watched to make sure they sank in the canal. All that remained was Farah's head. Linda said they needed to bury it far enough away that if it was found, it wouldn't be connected to any body part that might be pulled from the canal. One bag was manageable, even without a car. They could take the bus. At 1 p.m., all three women got on a bus, carrying Farah's head in a bag, and crossed town to Tymon Park. Tense from the lack of sleep and the trauma, the women quietly bickered as they walked through the park. They couldn't agree on the best place to bury the head. No place was hidden enough or deserted enough. Charlotte, frustrated and ready for the whole mess to be over, took the head and walked towards the woods. She knelt on the ground and dug through the wet, dense soil with her hands. No one had thought to bring a shovel. Eventually, she dug as deeply as she could and decided it was good enough. She took Farah's head out of the bag by the hair and stuck it in the hole. It still stuck out a fair amount, so she used the dirt she had excavated and patted it around, more or less concealing it. As Charlotte buried the head, Linda sat on a nearby bench looking around. She acted like she was keeping watch, but mostly she was avoiding looking at Farah. Of all the things they had done, Linda felt the most affected by Farah's head. She could see the other pieces of Farah as just body parts, but his face, that was him. She couldn't stand to look at it. When they got back to the apartment, Kathleen told her daughters that if they hadn't killed Farah, he probably would have beaten her to death before long. They had saved her life. Linda found little comfort in her words and left soon after. When she got home, she collapsed into bed, completely drained. Yet she could barely sleep, plagued by the memories of what she'd done. Linda took such a long pull from the vodka bottle that when she swallowed, her eyes teared up. The burn of the liquor permeated her whole face. She screwed the cap back on the bottle and returned it to its hiding place in her nightstand. 
she didn't want one of the kids to see it in her bedroom. Booze was the only way to make it through the night now. If she stayed sober, she'd stare at the ceiling for hours, watching it all happen over and over again. Anytime she was reminded about it, she took another pull of vodka. Even with the drinks, she still couldn't stop the nightmares. Linda saw two images on repeat. First, Farah's head. Everything about it. The way it looked. The fear of someone finding it in the park. Sometimes, it even spoke to her. Then she saw her children being taken away, as they saw her handcuffed in a police car. The more she had these dreams, the more Linda became convinced that someone was going to find Farah's head. She had to move it. It was too dangerous not to. When Charlotte and Kathleen heard Linda's plans for relocation, they immediately tried to talk her out of it. Everyone was buying the story that Farah had run off with another woman. It wasn't worth the risk of going back to the park. Linda agreed. For now. But on March 30th, 2005, 10 days after the murder, something surfaced in the water. Teenage boys, while fishing in the canal, spotted what they thought were pieces of a mannequin. Upon closer inspection, they saw the legs were covered in hair. It was a body. By the time the police arrived, it was getting dark outside. They had to wait until the next day to search the canal. Kathleen saw the police presence along the shore from her apartment window. She joined the crowds and blended in as a nosy neighbor. She listened with mock surprise when someone told her a body had been found, but no head. Investigators launched a massive media campaign to identify the headless man. They took photographs of the clothing found with the remains, including a white Ireland soccer jersey, and published the photos in newspapers. Many tips came in throughout April 2005, but none of them went anywhere. The longer it took to identify Farah, the more paranoid Linda became about the head. It was only a matter of time before someone was curious about the old lump of dirt at the park. A few weeks after police fished Farah's body out of the canal, Linda went through with her plan to relocate it. She later swore that when she looked at the partially decomposed face, it began speaking to her. Linda was experiencing a psychotic break known as brief psychotic disorder. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, this rare condition involves the same symptoms of psychosis, but generally lasts no longer than a month with a full recovery expected. It is often caused after a major stressor or trauma. Linda took the decomposing head to a different park and reburied it. Then she went home and drank until she passed out. When she woke up, she was still paranoid about someone discovering the head. It wasn't enough to move it. She had to destroy it. She went back to the park and unearthed the head for a second time. She put it in her son's school bag and brought it to a scrapyard along with a hammer and a bottle of vodka. Linda sat drinking with the head, apologizing to Farah over and over again for what they had done to him. Then she beat the bag with the hammer, 
destroying the skull inside. Exhausted and drunk, Linda passed out in the field. She woke up shivering and disoriented, unsure of how long she had been out. She got up and dumped the fragments of skull into a ditch and threw the hammer in after them. She then burned the bag and ran home. Over the next few weeks, the police focused on identifying the remains. On May 9, 2005, nearly two months after the murder, investigators got the break they were hoping for. Farah's friend, Muhammad Abu Bakar, came forward. He had seen Farah on March 20th with Kathleen and her daughters. He hadn't seen him since, but he remembered the Ireland soccer jersey Farah was wearing that day. He was sure it was the same one he saw in the newspaper. Though Farah's height and age did not match the estimates from the autopsy, he was added to the list of potential matches. The investigation into Farah was complicated, however, when police discovered that much of his life was a lie. For starters, Farah wasn't from Somalia. He was from neighboring Kenya. He had lied so he would qualify for asylum as a refugee. His name wasn't even Farah Noor. It was Shailila Saeed Salim. The wife he claimed was killed was actually alive and well in Kenya, raising their three children, who Farah claimed were missing. With Farah's life before Ireland a bit murky, police started with what they did know. He was last seen in Dublin with his girlfriend, Kathleen, and her apartment was his last known address. Kathleen voluntarily went to the station to answer questions and told police that Farah had packed his things and left back in February. They ran a check on his bank account. It hadn't been touched in six weeks. Then they checked his cell phone records. There were no calls logged from late March until early June. Then someone started using the phone again. They traced it to a man named Florian Williams. He told police he bought the phone from a co-worker, John Mulhall. If Farah had left Kathleen for another woman, why had he left his phone behind for her ex-husband to sell? It didn't make sense. Police focused their attention on the Mulhall family. Then, on July 11, 2005, the police caught a huge break. An inmate at Wheatfield Prison called the police and said he knew who the body in the canal was, who killed him, and how they did it. The caller, James Mulhall, Kathleen and John's oldest son. According to James, Kathleen visited him in prison shortly after the murder and broke down, telling him everything. He didn't believe her story, until he saw the body in the canal on the news. It's unclear what motivated him to come forward. Perhaps his conscience, perhaps the 10,000 euro reward for information. Investigators also talked to John Jr., the other Mohawk brother imprisoned at Wheatfield. John told them the same story, adding that his mother had set up the entire scenario. She purposely put Linda and Charlotte in the position to kill Farah because he was abusing her. John Jr. also implicated his father in the crime, saying that John Sr. had gone back to the apartment and helped dispose of the bloody clothes and the body. 
When police searched Kathleen's apartment, they found blood between the floorboards. It matched the DNA of the body parts. When they compared the sample to one of Farah's estranged children, there was no doubt. He was the dead man. On August 3rd, 2005, police arrested John, Kathleen, Linda, and Charlotte Mulhall in connection to Farah's murder. But the Mulhalls all denied any and all involvement in Farah's death. John swore that he didn't know what had happened to Farah and denied his son's accusations that he'd helped clean up the crime scene. Kathleen stuck with her story that Farah had left her. Linda denied being with Farah and her mother at all on the day he went missing. When confronted with Muhammad's sighting, she said she was so drunk she couldn't remember. Charlotte also claimed she was too drunk that day to recall anything. After holding the Mulhalls for 12 hours, investigators were forced to release all four when they had nothing other than hearsay to support charging them. Police had found only a small amount of blood in the floorboards and nowhere else. It was possible that Farah had cut himself in the four months he lived there. In the absence of more evidence, police needed to get one of the Mulhalls to confess. They felt that their best hope was with Linda, who was very emotional during the questioning, while Kathleen and Charlotte remained cool. Police didn't know how right they were. By the time Linda got home, she realized it was just a matter of time before the other shoe dropped. She knew the 12 hours she spent with investigators was just the beginning. They weren't going to let this go. The more she worried, the more she drank. John, both frustrated and worried, coaxed Linda to go to the police. None of this would end until police had the answers they were looking for. Linda eventually gave in and agreed to speak with police at her father's house. But when lead investigator Detective Inspector Christopher Mangan arrived, Linda balked. Even if she cooperated, they could lock her up for 20 years or more. She would come out of jail a grandmother, having missed every moment of her children's lives. She had already gotten away with it for five months. If she stayed quiet, she could stay free. She could keep her kids. She told D.I. Mangan she had nothing to say after all. Before leaving, he warned her the investigation wasn't going away. She had a choice to make. Up next, the investigation into the murder of Faranor intensifies. Now the conclusion of the story. By August of 2005, 30-year-old Linda Mohall, as well as her sister and parents, was a prime suspect in Detective Christopher Mangan's murder investigation. After 12 hours of questioning, Linda appeared ready to tell the detective everything. But at the last moment, she changed her mind. Then, three hours later, she changed her mind again. Linda needed absolution. She also hoped confessing the truth might bring her a more lenient sentence. She called back Mangan and told him everything. After recounting the events of the night of March 20th, 
she brought him to the scrapyard where she dumped the broken fragments of Farah's skull, though police weren't able to actually locate the pieces. Hoping for continued cooperation, Mangan let Linda go home rather than arresting her. Over the next two days, she continued to meet with police, leading them to other key scenes, such as the park where the head was originally buried. A search of the park's lake recovered the murder weapons. Though Linda often sobbed through her statements to police, afterwards she felt much better. A burden had been lifted. For the first time in months, she slept well. She tried to make things up to her kids, cooking their favorite meals and meeting them after school, staying more or less sober. But none of these improvements changed what she had done. On September 14th, 2005, Mangan had every detail from Linda he needed, and it was time to take the case to court. Even though she knew it was coming, Linda still wept while she was arrested by Mangan. Warrants were also issued that day for 49-year-old Kathleen and 22-year-old Charlotte. Kathleen had moved an hour away soon after the first 12-hour interrogation with police. She stopped contacting her family, and none of them knew where she was. But it didn't take long for police to catch up to her. She was arrested the day after Linda. She still stuck to her initial denials. When confronted with Linda's confession, she described her daughter as a mentally unstable drug user. Though, she conceded, she wouldn't be surprised if Linda had killed Farah. Eventually, Mangan ran out of time to hold Kathleen. He couldn't charge her based on only Linda's statement. He needed evidence or they needed a confession. Kathleen was offering up neither. Before she left, Kathleen told investigators that when the truth finally came out, she expected an apology from them. And then she walked out a free woman. It took investigators a full month to track down Charlotte. They brought her in for questioning in October 2005. Charlotte's initial statement to the police was quite different than her sister's. She claimed Linda was trying to cover for their mother. She said that Kathleen had murdered and dismembered Farah while the sisters were not there. They did, however, help her clean up the scene. Mangan sensed that Charlotte's priority was looking out for Linda. Leveraging that, he asked her if she loved Linda. When she said she did, he told her that lying would only make things worse for her sister. Charlotte broke. She started to cry. Mangan prodded her slowly. What happened? She whispered. Everything that Linda said. After she confessed to Mangan, Charlotte was arrested and charged with murder. Both sisters were released on bail while they waited for their day in court. Linda soon turned back to drinking and drugs. She even spent 10 days in a psychiatric hospital. Then, in early December of 2005, Linda got into an explosive argument with John that would have terrible consequences. This past year had been the worst of Linda's life, even worse than when her parents split up, even worse than temporarily losing custody of her kids. 
by now, Linda was nearly broken. It was only a few weeks until Christmas, and she had planned to spend the afternoon picking up a few presents for her children. She knew how special this Christmas had to be for them. But when she went to retrieve the cash she'd squirreled away for their presents, Linda found only an empty box. Someone had stolen it. Not someone. It had to have been Charlotte. Linda seethed at the discovery. She was about to go to prison, and she couldn't even give her family one last happy memory. Just then, John Sr. came home. He'd been out at a pub with his brother Eric and youngest daughter, 19-year-old Marie. They trotted into the kitchen, full of good food and conversation. It made Linda see bread. She screamed at her father. All of this was his fault. She wouldn't even be going to jail if he hadn't pressured her into confessing. She laid into him, calling him a terrible father. No wonder Kathleen ended up with someone as bad as Farah after years of being with him. Then she burst into tears. Shocked, John immediately tried to comfort her. He promised to do whatever he could to help her. As John tried to calm his daughter down, she told him about the stolen money. John was furious. He grabbed his keys and left to go find Charlotte. He was going to get the money back for Linda's kids. Eric, worried about his brother, decided to stay the night with his niece. It was late already, and he wanted to make sure John was okay when he got back. Eric dozed off waiting, but John never came home. When John still hadn't shown by the next evening, Eric reported him missing. A few hours later, police knocked at the Mulhall family home. They'd found him. As John drove around looking for Charlotte, his mind wandered to the pressure his family was under and his inability to truly help them. James and John were already in prison, and Linda and Charlotte were headed there too. What kind of father ends up with four incarcerated children? Maybe they would have gotten away with it if he hadn't interfered, if he hadn't pushed Linda to confess. John pulled over alongside some woods at Phoenix Park in Dublin. He walked into the woods a short distance, then quickly scrawled a note saying that all of his belongings should go to his 19-year-old daughter Marie and stuffed it into his pocket. With a rope from his van, he fashioned a noose around a tree branch and hung himself. Some wondered if John's death was evidence of greater involvement in the murder and dismemberment of Farah than anyone has let on. But psychologist Jesse Baring said in his book, Suicidal, why we kill ourselves, that there is rarely one factor that leads to someone taking their own life. However, in the vast majority of cases, social problems, particularly concerns about what others think, is one of the factors. John had been preoccupied with the news coverage of the investigation and how he and his family were being portrayed. The newspapers had dubbed Charlotte and Linda the Scissor Sisters because of the dismemberment. The Scissor Sisters were a popular pop rock band in the UK, and the nickname stuck. John hated it. He also carried a lot of personal guilt. If he had been a better husband, 
Kathleen never would have been mixed up with Farah at all. John, whatever his faults, had been the stabilizing factor in the Mulhall family. Kathleen was in the wind, so Linda and Charlotte, now 31 and 23, faced their October 2006 trial largely alone. The women both pled not guilty, hoping to show that they had committed the murder in self-defense, or at the very least, that they had been provoked by Farah's actions. Both of the sisters' confessions were read to the jury. Charlotte, who sat without showing emotion for much of the trial, became overwhelmed when the details of the murder and dismemberment were read. She told her attorney she was going to be ill, and the court had to adjourn for the day. Eventually, the jury found Charlotte guilty of murder and Linda guilty of manslaughter. Charlotte received a mandatory life sentence, eligible for parole after seven years. Linda's sentence for manslaughter, however, was at the judge's discretion. Generally, those convicted of manslaughter in Ireland are rarely sentenced to more than eight years. Therefore, there were gasps in the courtroom when Linda was sentenced to 15 years. The judge said that he would have given her 18, but he took the cooperation with police into consideration. In April 2007, six months after the Mulhall sisters' convictions, Kathleen was charged for her role in the cover-up. However, she had gone back into hiding. The rumor was she had fled the country. Journalist Mick McCaffrey wrote a book about the Mulhall case called The Irish Scissor Sisters, McCaffrey managed to track down Kathleen in December of 2007. He found her living in London under the name Kathy Ward. He informed Dublin police and on February 12, 2008, they showed up on her doorstep. Kathleen voluntarily returned to Ireland, where she was arrested and charged with aiding and abetting a crime. She pled guilty and received a five-year sentence. As of this recording... Charlotte Mulhall, now 35, is incarcerated at Limerick Prison. She has been denied parole since first becoming eligible in 2013. Kathleen Mulhall, now 55, was released at the end of her sentence in 2011. Linda Mulhall, now 43, was released in January of 2018 after completing 75% of her sentence. This automatic reduction in sentence is standard in Ireland. Perhaps the forgotten victims in this tragedy are Farah's family in Kenya. They relied on the money he sent to survive. His wife and mother have pleaded with the Mulhalls to reveal the location of Farah's head so they could bury Farah's remains together. So far, their pleas have gone unanswered. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. When true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Podcast Network. <laughs>
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.